Hello, my name is Andrew Pollard. Welcome to our podcast series, The Oxford Colloquy, bringing the facts, stories and people behind the science. On this podcast, we'll be talking with Uga Sahin, who is the CEO of BioNTech, about his work with the amazing innovation of RNA vaccines for cancer, which then were the forerunner of the COVID-19 vaccines made from RNA that saved so many lives during the pandemic. Uga Sahin, CEO of BioNTech, welcome to our podcast. Yeah, nice to be here, Andrew. Thank you. Wonderful. So, Uga, the, the reason why we're talking with you today is as the CEO of BioNTech, you've been intimately involved in the development of RNA technology and then made a, a huge contribution with the development of the BioNTech-Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine. And we're going to talk about that in some detail during this podcast. But I thought it'd be interesting just to learn a little bit about the man behind the vaccine and to hear some of the backstory. In some ways, I feel we're quite connected. I think I'm three weeks older than you, so we're <laughs> almost parallel in, in our lives in different countries. Now, you were born in Turkey, is, is that right? And then moved to Germany when you were about four years of age. Yes, I, I was born in Turkey in Iskenderun. And at that time, my father was already in Germany working in Cologne. And four years thereafter, my mom and I came to Germany. And since then, I'm living in Germany. Yeah. So what was it about growing up in Cologne that made you decide to study medicine and go to medical school in Cologne? What drove you to do that? Uh, actually, I was, as a kid, interested in two things. Uh, on the one side, playing soccer yeah, with, with all the friends. And, and this was really, the, so we, we were always playing soccer outside. And the second thing I was very interested in was science. I was interested from the age of nine, 10 in science books. We had a library, a Catholic church library in a very close where I lived. And I was spending my weekends there yeah, and reading popular science books, but also uh, particularly uh, I was interested in technology and in medicine. Uh-huh. And and so that sort of inspired you to uh, go to medical school and other experiences in childhood that made you think about doing medicine? No, I was fascinated. I was really fascinated by biology. I was also inspired by, in, in Germany, there were some sort of science TV shows. Yeah. And I was always interested in that. And at a certain time, I realized how interesting the immune system is. Yeah? And I was very much interested in understanding that and understood that the immune system could be used to fight cancer. That was even before you went to university? Yes, 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 definitely. And so I got interested in, in reading and thinking about that. And my decision to study medicine and to go to university, I made the decision at the age of 12. Wonderful. And then from medical school, you went on to train as an oncologist. What what was it that sort of led you into oncology? I mean, it's, it's obviously, a, as a clinician, very interesting both scientifically, but very challenging medically to deal with patients with cancer. Yeah. So parallel to studying medicine, I, I worked in the lab in, in, in Germany. You can do that in parallel Yeah, before finishing school. And I was, of course, fascinated by the ongoing first revolution 
in immunology. So that was in the late 1980s, beginning 1990s, where more and more molecules were cloned and the different cell types of the immune system were deciphered. And there was a lot of excitement in the field and that this increasing understanding could be also used for development of cancer vaccines and cancer immunotherapy. So that was the scientific motivation. And on the other side, I was always driven by the desire to help. So even as a kid, I did not understood why patients or people were sick with cancer. And I heard that someone is going to die by cancer. And I thought the person looks good, healthy. Yeah. Uh, why no one is doing something. So this situation of seeing a medical need and also understanding that there is no urgency to do something was some sort of a driver. And I went to oncology because of these two reasons. On the one side, seeing the medical need and on the other side, really seeing the opportunity that we might be able to do something with innovative treatments. And I, I think uh, your comment you made about particularly the 1980s with this rapid progress in, in understanding the immune system, at least characterizing it, perhaps not understanding it, but things like the discovery of the T-cell receptor and its description. I mean, it was amazingly exciting time. I actually got into immunology in the 1980s as an undergraduate for exactly that reason, because everything seemed to be moving so rapidly and almost getting ahead of the, the knowledge that was actually in medicine at the time, the, the scientific discovery. So as an oncologist in the German system, how did you sort of proceed through your career? Certainly my friends in the German system say it's a very hierarchical system. It's critical that you have powerful mentors who are going to support you in your career. Did you identify people who were sort of helping a path for you to be able to develop both academically and clinically? Yes, I was lucky that I worked in a university hospital. It was normal for us to, on the one side, deal with patients on the day, day daytime and in the afternoon and evening go to the labs and work there. So we were physician scientists, yeah? and this creates some sort of a real interesting mindset. On the one side, you have your patients where you are only able to provide the standard treatment, yeah? but you are seeing the patients also as a scientist and understanding that there are potential opportunities what could be done. And then you are going to the lab and doing research and understanding how this research might one day impact patients. And it's an interesting constellation, a research a hospital where you can do in parallel research. I think it's it certainly, for me as well, one of the most inspiring things is to be there looking after patients and knowing that in a laboratory, in your research activities, you can be taking that knowledge and I guess, as you say, the urgency of the problem in front of you into your research activities. The instructions contained in genes are found in DNA in humans and mammals, but some viruses, instead of using DNA, use RNA as the instructions that they have for telling cells how to make proteins. And RNA viruses like influenza and COVID-19 contain the genetic instructions in a string of genes made of RNA. And that RNA, when the virus inserts it into our cells, harnesses our cells to make the proteins and make new viruses that can then infect other cells and, of course, other people. 
people. And so, what, 23 years ago now, you moved to the University of Mainz and were leading an academic program there. Where did you realise that RNA might be a useful technology? And I think for you, originally in cancer, I mean, those of us who are interested in infectious diseases have a different view on where we might spend our time, but you were focusing on cancer there. Why did RNA seem like a good target? In the 90s, in the mid-90s, we developed an approach for discovering tumor antigens, which allowed us systematically to analyze tumor antigens in cancer patients. And with this approach, we started to identify more and more tumor antigens. And it became clear to us at a certain time point that there is no universal tumor antigens. So tumor antigens are proteins that are expressed uniquely in, in cancer cells, but not normally found in other cells. Yeah, exactly. Thank you for defining that. And so our goal was to develop cancer vaccines to redirect the patient's immune system, to stimulate the patient's immune system with this type of tumor antigens. And of course, the technical problem, which became very clear at a certain time point, is you can't just make a vaccine because every patient has some sort of different tumor antigens and you have to make different tumor antigens. And therefore, we were interested in vaccine technologies that could deal with this challenge. So in other words, adapt so you'd have a different vaccine for every patient. Yes, and, and this individualization or personalization was driving the search for technologies. This was mid-1990s. We got first of all, interested in DNA vaccines, which were very popular at that time point. And what we realized after spending a year in DNA vaccines that DNA is not entering dendritic cells, which we believe are extremely important to induce immune responses. And we started to do our first experiments in mid-1990s on, with mRNA. Yeah? And I remember the very first experiment uh, that we did uh, with mRNA uh, and assessing the transfection of dendritic cells while we were trying to use DNA and that only 0.5% transfected dendritic cells. I saw more than 70% dendritic cell transfection in the very first experiment. And, and this was some, some sort of mind-blowing. And we understood that in principle, RNA could be useful for that. And try to focus on making that work. So the idea of, of this is the ability to get RNA into these cells in the immune system that would be very important in then educating the immune system about the abnormal proteins in cancer cells. Yeah, this was and is, I think, still the general idea and the general principle how vaccines work. Yeah, You have to bring the vaccine, the RNA, into the standardic cells. Yeah, to get uh, strong immune responses. I was doing the research with my partners in Turegi at that time point, and we were just fascinated by this idea. But it was also very clear that this works only if you deliver the RNA directly into in cell culture to dendritic cells. When we tried the same experiment to do it in vivo, in, in animal models, we understood how weak the molecule was. Yeah. Because it gets destroyed by the animal's cells and their bodies very quickly. It got destroyed and the piece that made it to the dentist cells were just not powerful enough. So the theory you'd already shown in the laboratory, in, in culture in cells, in a, a dish in the laboratory, you could make that work. But it just couldn't at that stage be made practical actually in a human or an animal. Yes, it, it, it was clear that in principle it could work, but we calculated that we have to improve this approach around 10,000 times yeah, to make it really <laughs> relevant. At that time, were you thinking that 
if you could make the technology work, it was useful for infectious diseases as well, or, or was really all of the focus on cancer? No, I, it was very clear in the 1990s what, and beginning 2000, what became very clear is that the immune system is, of course, evolved to deal with infections. Yeah. So what we were doing is trying to use the mechanism that the immune system had evolved against infections yeah, to redirect it against cancer. So for us, it was very clear that we could also use this type of technologies as infectious disease vaccines. But at that time, I didn't see the medical need. So I was, as a physician working with cancer patients, this was our primary goal to focus on cancer immunotherapy. Hearing that you were working on RNA vaccines back in the 90s really is, I think, a really important counter to the idea that the vaccines in 2020 were developed too quickly. I mean, <laughs> this has been a huge effort over decades to get to this point where a, an RNA vaccine could be deployed at scale. You know, I think that's true of, of course, most products that ever get to the market. But it always seems that the last bit, the, the last hurdles are the ones that are publicly known about yes. rather than all this huge effort. So what was it, um, Uga, that then made that critical step for going from this impossible situation of the RNA disappearing as soon as you make it when you've put it into humans to actually having something stable that could be used coherently as, as a vaccine program, either for cancer or infectious disease? Yeah, these were many, many improvements and smaller and larger discoveries that we made. So we had this approach that we were systematically testing how to improve the potency of the mRNA, so how to ensure that the same amount of mRNA makes more protein. And we were asking the question how to bring the mRNA to the dendritic cells. And, and there were a few bigger discoveries. One discovery was relatively early when we came to mines. We discovered that dendritic cells by themselves are able to take up mRNA yeah. And these are huge molecules, you have to imagine. These are much larger than proteins. And, uh, even though without providing any transfection reagents, they were able to translate that within minutes. Yeah? And when we injected the mRNA directly into the lymph nodes, we saw that the immune response became 100-fold stronger than when we injected the mRNA to nearby the lymph nodes. Yeah, so this was very clear, we have to bring the mRNA. And we found the mechanism that is re relevant for uptake of the mRNA. And we were able to make nanoparticles that could protect the mRNA and enable that the same mechanisms, micropinocytosis, could be used. And, and with that, we were able from 2003, 2004, to get really the strong immune responses that we wanted to get. So this is packaging the RNA in, in a, a, a small covering of a different material, which is called lipid, that is then able to help protect it and stabilize it. Yes, and we discovered many molecular modifications in the sequence of the mRNA. So the mRNA has, in principle, you can define the mRNA as one piece of coding for the information for the protein. Yeah? And then the mRNA has a number of additional elements, which we call backbone. Yeah? So this is, for example, the very prime end of the mRNA, which is called cap, and then there are other sequences. And we evaluated biochemical changes, we evaluated sequence changes, and we identified improvements, which allowed us to increase the translation, the potency of the mRNA fivefold, tenfold. And the most exciting finding was when we combined these independent improvements, we, multi we got a multiplication. Yeah? 
Uh, so we, we solve the translation of the mRNA on the one side by the sequence elements, on, on the other side by working on this lipid particles. So once you get the RNA into the cells in, in the human or the animal, what, what it is is a set of instructions telling the cell how to make a protein in, in the case that you're talking about, a tumor protein that could then be recognized by the immune system. So did you have any difficulties in stopping the RNA from being recognized by the cell and destroyed as something that shouldn't be there? No, we were actually benefiting from our cancer vaccines on this because the mRNA is recognized by the immune system, by the innate immune system, and it stimulates cytokines. Yeah, And for us, it was intended. So it was because we wanted the cytokines to have an adjuvant effect. Yeah, The adjuvant effect of a cancer vaccine helps that the immune cells that are stimulated yeah, not only get this information, but also get the information that they should have a phenotype uh, that can kill tumor cells. So that was piece of the mRNA function. Yeah, so it's essentially the, the, the package that is there soups up the immune response. You not only get the right response, but it's actually made stronger and, and directed in the way that you want by that packaging. So that work is going on and you're starting to refine that to think about individual therapies as cancer vaccines for different types of tumour in, in different individuals as, as a personalised form of therapy. And then a pandemic comes along. So were you already thinking actually need to move into infection? diseases at that stage, or was that something which was really stimulated by the, the realization that you could contribute in this extraordinary moment that we all experienced? Yeah. So as a background, we started at the university. We were making all these this discoveries at the university. And at a certain time point, of course, we realized that if we want to bring that to patients, we have to start a company. We started BioNTech as a spin-off of the university, got the funding, and we used the funding to build uh, GMP manufacturing so that we could really make these vaccines for clinical research. And as a side, side project, we were also evaluating infectious disease vaccines. Yeah, And our first infectious disease vaccine was, of course, using influenza <laughs> uh, as a test reagent. Yeah, so at least something very well characterized. So it's a good thing to work with because there's lots of flu vaccines out there to compare with. Yes, and, and we realized that the vaccines that we, the stabilizations that we had developed for cancer were also useful to get strong immune responses against infectious disease. For infectious disease, we are using different type of nanoparticles. And yeah, so we tested, we started to systematically work in, in the infectious disease vaccines, but only in the preclinical setting in 2012, 2013, avoiding the recognition of the pieces that are recognized by the immune system, the uridines. And this is a discovery made by colleagues in the University of Pennsylvania, Katie Carrico and Weissman, by modifying this, this, the mRNA, we get more stronger antibody responses. Yeah? And so that we had several types of vaccines with the uridine, which we, which we are using for cancer. Uh, and for the infectious disease setting, we were at that time 
point starting to use also nucleoside modified mRNA, seeing that both types works, but the nucleoside modified gives better, better antibody responses. So this is, I guess, happening still about 10 years ago, these discoveries were, were being made. Yeah. So wh- where were you up to by 2019 with these antiviral vaccines? We had started a collaboration with Pfizer on flu. <laughs> uh, and we had the plan to evaluate infectious disease vaccine and the timing of the evaluation was more in the time range of three to four years. So that was really not driven by urgency. But in the cancer setting, we had shown in clinical trials, we had treated more than 400 patients with our personalized cancer vaccine. And we had shown clinical activity of these vaccines. We could show that we can take a sequence, a genetic sequence, representing the tumor mutations and make vaccines within four to six weeks and deliver them to cancer patients. Well, I think an important point about what you've just said there is that four to six weeks to make a vaccine is is astonishing. I mean, we look at most normal biological vaccines that are used in humans at the moment, and the the shortest duration to actually make a, a lot is usually about three months. But for flu vaccines, they're at least six months because most of them start with eggs and it's a very prolonged process to get to a flu vaccine. So four to six weeks is pretty groundbreaking in in manufacturing terms to be able to move that quickly. So the relationship with Pfizer was already established before the pandemic. And that was because the investment that they could provide or their clinical trial setup. What was it that drew you to work with Pfizer at that point? We we were interested for us for us it was important to have different type of partnerships and we had at that time point partnerships with Genentech on cancer vaccines with GenMap with Sanofi on different type of projects you know we were at that time point a biotech company and in biotech if you do research and development innovation development one of the aspects is go into collaboration with established pharma companies. This validates your technology. It was something where we said by, we are bringing the technology, we are bringing the innovation, and Pfizer could bring in the special expertise, yeah, how to yeah, clinically develop a vaccine. Yeah. So this was driven by the synergy and complementarity. And it was also driven by the fact and that the colleagues that we were working at Pfizer, and uh, this were Katrin Janssen yeah, and Phil Dormitzer, they were champions for this project at Pfizer, also with a very scientific background. Yeah. So it was yeah, too, too synergy uh, in evaluating this and working on infectious disease vaccines at that time. But it was early. It was very early in the, in the project. So the pandemic starts, and I guess you became very aware of it, like most of us in early 2020. When did you decide that actually BioNTech could design and put together an, an, an mRNA vaccine for COVID-19? Yeah, my decision was made after reading a paper in Lancet, in, which came out on January 24th. This was the first paper describing the cases. And the paper described human infections, human-to-human transmission. It described the disease. It described that this is a new virus of the SARS-CoV-2 SARS family. And and most importantly, the paper described the case of an infected individual with with pulmonary infection without symptoms. And this alerted me because if an infection is asymptomatic, 
than any approach which is based on controlling people and trying to restrict the infection is limited. Yeah? And so I, I came to the conclusion this is going to become a pandemic. Yeah? I was very convinced by that, also after doing some math. Yeah? And the decision was made on the weekend together with Ersten Tureji. And on Monday, we went to the lab and started this project after having already designed vaccine sequences on the weekend. So, I mean, the sequence of the virus was available. So actually those steps in designing, given that you had all of that background of how to design and, and modify the RNA, I guess was a relatively straightforward bit. The, the real challenge was how do you take that to something which could then be deployed at scale in a rapid time to actually have an impact in the pandemic? Yeah, absolutely. We had what we knew at that time point, of course, that we have a vaccine technology which is really powerful. We knew that we can prepare vaccines for the clinical stage, clinical testing within a few weeks. But there were a number of unknowns, and you are aware of that. We didn't know what is the best vaccine target. Yeah, there were several publications. Everyone was focusing on the spike protein. Yeah, but it was at least for many of us, it was not clear whether it's the full spike protein or a piece of the spike protein. So we really started with 20 candidates. And this was all happening in Germany. So you, you manufactured in your own plant in BioNTech, yeah. Yes, we started this project in Germany and we contacted also Pfizer and asked them whether they would like to join us in this project. And at that time point, they were not interested yeah, because it was, for many, it was not clear whether this is uh, going to become a pandemic. And also there was no any example that during a pandemic, a new vaccine can be developed with such a speed. So there was also the skepticism yeah, uh, that this can be done. But what we did is really we calculated what we need to, to do to do everything in parallel, not only come up with the candidates, but manufacture them, plan the clinical trial, plan the upscaling of the vaccines. Uh, so it was technically possible. So we knew that if everything really works well, it is technically possible to develop a vaccine in less than 10 months. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So I guess then, were you aware of the work that Moderna was doing at the time that sort of gave you reassurance, I guess, that another RNA vaccine yeah. developer was also thinking this is a good route to go down? Uh, yes, I think at that time point, it was many groups published that they are working on vaccines. Yeah, And so at the time point, it was, I think, beginning March, there were more than 100 groups and companies who had announced that they are working on a vaccine. I think later on, it became more and more clearer yeah, that this is something that we need to do. Yeah, But we still knew that based on what we have in our hands, we could be among the first coming up as a vaccine. And yeah. And so you started running those initial trials in Germany. I, I'm sure you were seeing good immune responses in those first studies and the data are published and publicly available showing that. So what point did then Pfizer come on board to do the, the critical pivotal trial, which is the efficacy study? Yeah. So Pfizer came in, the decision to join us was done by Pfizer, I think in the second week of, of March. So the virus was first in China, then in Europe, and then in the US. Yeah. And we decided that we would work together 
in the best possible way. So that means everyone should focus on their strengths. Uh, and it was very clear that we can't do a phase three clinical trial because for the phase three clinical trial, you, you really need to run a study for 40,000 subjects. And Pfizer started to prepare for this clinical trial. We shared all the documents. Pfizer shared that, uh, or we shared that together with the FDA. We were doing the clinical trial in Germany. Yeah. Uh, and Pfizer recapitulated every arm that we had in Germany with uh, around four weeks delay, yeah, so that we had data from vaccinated individuals in Germany, but also in the US. Yeah. And the key question was, what is the right candidate? Yeah, because we had 20 in the preclinic uh, and four candidates went into the clinic. And from these four candidates, we got all the immunogenicity data. And on July 24, uh, we together made the decision to take BNT162B2 as the candidate for the phase three clinical trial. And, and the difference between the different candidates was different RNA sequences. Were they all spike protein sequences? Yes, these were all spike protein sequences. Our first preferred candidate was even the receptor binding domain, a much, much smaller piece. And it produced really nice neutralizing antibodies. But what we have seen is that the full spike, of course, has many more T-cell epitopes. And most of the T-cell epitopes were in the outside of the RBD domain. So we said we need really both arms of the immune system. So as T-cell immunologists, we were, of course, of course, seeing the importance of T-cell responses. And therefore, we decided to go for the full spike. Of course, the whole antibody almost certainly has many other antibody-recognizing epitopes as well, although they may not be neutralized and they may still have useful functions. So I, I think that, it, in the end, has been the most widely used vaccines have all used the whole spike protein and had a, an absolutely dramatic effect. So it must have been incredibly exciting for you as you we went through 2020 to finally, later in the year, in, in the autumn, to see the incredible results from the efficacy trials that Pfizer was running across both Europe and in the US. Yes. Of course, we had seen the phase one data, but it was still not clear whether a vaccine would be in humans would be able to prevent infection and prevent severe disease in vaccinated individuals. And only with the interim analysis of the phase three data, it was clear we have a vaccine. And as you say, the phase three data shows remarkable efficacy, given that no one had really any idea what level could be expected in humans. These vaccines all work very well in animals and protecting them, but we just didn't really know whether the same would be the case in, in the real world in humans. So then the trials are finished. Of course, the next thing is licensing and the rollout. And the first ever dose was a national program was given here in the UK. Were, were you watching that? Were you here in the UK when that happened? No, I was not in the UK. But where I had been involved, of course, was in the discussion about the authorization process, which was only possible with really extreme close collaboration between the company and the MHRA, yeah, the UK regulator. And it, it was really amazing how much collaboration was done at that time point. So we submitted documents and two hours Thereafter, we got already questions and people were working around the clock, yeah, even in the night, yeah, uh, getting questions and answering that. And then the UK became the place of the first authorization, emergency authorization of our vaccine. And the place, of course, also where the first subject 
uh, was vaccinated. Yeah. Then I, I guess the, the the next bit is really of huge historical relevance that your partnership with Pfizer resulted in RNA vaccines being rolled out at the most enormous scale. What's the total number of doses that have now been given the, of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine? I don't know the most recent numbers, but in 2021, uh, we produced 4 billion doses and shipped 3 billion doses worldwide. And so I guess one of the issues at the beginning was the cold chain requirement, which is, I, I guess, to do with making sure that the RNA stays stable so that when you're actually delivering it to the individual being vaccinated, that you've still got the same dose you, you thought you had. Now, that's been optimised considerably. What are the changes that have been made to actually deal with that cold chain challenge that was there right at the beginning? At the beginning, we just, in the first months, we generated stability data and realised that the vaccine is pretty stable, also at minus 20 degrees for a certain time. And we then did extended formulation work analysis, testing stability at 4 degrees, at minus 20 degrees. And it was only minor changes at the end of the day to have a stability at a 2 to 8 degree, which is which is the normal fridge temperature, yeah? and, and ensure that the data package is sufficient to support that the vaccine indeed can be used when stored in fridge temperature. And of course, that has actually really transformed the ability today for the, the vaccine to be used, and it's being very widely used at, at this very moment. If you think now ahead to where things are going in this area, both in the cancer vaccines you're working on and infectious diseases, is, is the story finished or is there more to do? So our cancer story is not finished. So development of cancer therapies takes many, many years. But we are now in the situation to do this at a much broader scale. So we can be developing cancer immunotherapies and cancer vaccines, mRNA cancer vaccines, this personalized cancer vaccines. We have a great collaboration with, with the NHS. We are collaborating with many hospitals to do our clinical trials. This will take us several several more years. So we expect that the first personalized cancer vaccines could come in the time frame until 2030 yeah, and could then become broadly available. We are working on infectious disease vaccines. And here we are particularly interested in infectious disease vaccines that are relevant for global health. We have a malaria program, we have a tuberculosis program, we have HSV2 program, and I'm more interested also in infectious disease vaccines that are of particular relevance for low and middle income countries. And as you know, we are <laughs> talking about potential collaborations working together. Clearly, in our conversations before, we're very passionate about the access to vaccines and that focus on global health. Is, is that something that comes from some experiences you've had personally? or Because I guess your focus in oncology has been much more in a high-income setting. What, what is it that's drawn you to the broader global health issues? It's a mindset. It's, it's a mindset as an innovator. So our mindset in developing cancer immunotherapies is bringing medicines to patients and uh, so medical need. And it's the same mindset. The question that we are asking ourselves is what are the challenges in making these vaccines available? And since medical need is extremely high in this in these regions, we believe that we have the obligation to use our technology to ensure that we can make a difference with what we are doing. So as, as a, a boy growing up in Cologne, if you hadn't gone into medicine and become CEO of BioNTech, what do you think you would have done instead? Uh, studying mathematics. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> physics. Yeah. And I had also a time that I wanted to become a soccer player. Yeah. You've given up hope for that, have you? <laughs> uh, I, I gave up the hope for that. And I realized that I was playing well, but I realized that my core talents were really in different fields. <laughs> well, I, I think we're all very glad that you did stick with science rather than soccer. I think probably have greater impact on the world by doing that. What, what do you do in your spare time to relax? Yeah, of course, spending time with family and spending time doing sport and spending time reading a lot. Yeah, I'm deeply in, interested in science and mathematics, still using the time to learn and enjoy what is happening in the scientific field. Very good. The the work that you've done, particularly leading up to the pandemic and through the pandemic, you had the most incredible impact on the world through the development of the vaccine and many millions of lives saved as a result of, of your perseverance here. So thank you so much for spending time talking to us on this podcast. Yeah, thank you, Andrew. That was the Oxford Colloquy. Thanks for joining us in our podcast, bringing you the facts, stories and people behind the science. So you might be wondering, what is a colloquy? We've called this podcast series the Oxford Colloquy. Well, a colloquy is a discourse or a conversation, and hopefully you'll agree that that's what we've been having. 